0: Welcome to Cato Audio for March 2023. I'm Cato Brown. In this month's offering, a deep dive into the uncertain world of regulating decentralized finance. Cato's Jay Schweigert examines what creating a culture of regular, dependable accountability for police might look like. And Cato's Clark Neely details our vanishing system of criminal trials. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. With the publication of the Human Freedom Index, we have uh, now have data going back to uh, 2000 on human freedom uh, by country around the globe, and the picture is not good. Uh, we're joined by uh, Ian Vasquez. He is vice president for international studies at the Cato Institute and director of the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity at the Cato Institute, and at the same time, we face attacks on globalization, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how related uh, those things are. And we're also joined by Joan Norberg, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, uh, and he is also executive editor at Free to Choose Media. So, gentlemen, welcome. Uh, Ian, if you don't mind, uh, the pandemic, of course, wreaked havoc on human freedom uh, at, the, at the country level. What have we learned uh, both about the pandemic, about freedom? And about the larger trend since the year 2000.
1: Well, you mentioned the Human Freedom Index that we that we publish, uh, and now has data going back to the year 2000, and it goes through the year 2020, which of course is the pandemic year. And what emerges is a picture that looks something like this, where uh from 20 from the year 2000 up until the year 2007 you see global freedom on an increase and it reaches a high point at around the year 2007 and then begins to slowly uh descend and that coincides uh with a period uh that uh, begins more or less around the financial crisis the global financial crisis and uh the rise of all sorts of illiberalisms populisms of the right and left authoritarian populisms in uh, countries around the world through the year 2019 and then in the year 2020 you just see this gigantic drop in freedom in global freedom and it's uh, really striking because of its extent and the degree to which freedom drops off 94% 94% of the world's population, we calculate, lost freedom in the year 2020, and that's after nearly 80% had been losing freedom in the past uh, se- several years, and that drop in freedom was significant. It, it took us back more than two decades in terms of, uh, of the freedoms that were gained uh, during that period, and of course, only time will tell uh, how much uh, we will have recovered since that uh, year. I think it's fair to say that uh, today we are less free than we were, say, in January 2020. But that's the overall global picture. And I think that that mirrors what has happened in so many countries around the world, whether they're democracies or non-democracies, rich countries or not. Joanne, when we see countries that are
0: uh, losing freedom... Uh, how does that correlate with countries that are, in a sense, turning inward? That is, they they do not want to engage as much with the rest of the world. They are less open. You wrote a book about called "Open," about uh, the degree to which people and countries are willing to experience new things and, you know, take that take that gamble, take that risk on. Uh, a willingness and openness to the rest of the world.
2: Yeah, openness and globalization is often the canary in the coal mine, because when we see these kinds of shifts in an authoritarian direction towards more of statism and, and populism, one thing they really dislike is openness, because with openness comes uh, surprises, new ideas and innovation and competition, and that's something that they don't like. So. The picture for globalization is actually remarkably similar to what Ian just said about human freedom generally. Over my lifetime, since the early 1970s, we've seen an increase in trade as a share of global GDP, so that it's basically doubled from the early 1970s until a peak in 2007-2008. And then after the global financial crisis, since then, we've basically seen for every liberalizing trade measure in a country, we've had four to five protectionist ones. We've seen a drop in uh, foreign direct investments. Um, It's uh, been reduced by almost three quarters since 2008, and this share of uh, trade in in goods and services generally has not just stagnated, it has begun to decline. And that's worrying for so many reasons, for freedom, for prosperity, the abilities to specialise and and to make sure that our our countries are competitive and uh, fully functioning. And it's also the case that protectionism is contagious. So when someone starts with trade wars, with um, tariffs, then Others step up their game and they want to do the same thing because they think they're losing out unless they also implement these tariffs. Uh, And we can now see that with America's uh, very large subsidy packages uh, where every other country thinks that this is a way of taking their jobs and businesses. So they implement their own subsidy programs right now.
0: You mentioned the financial crisis, and I, I wonder the degree to which that sort of turned the tide. In a sense, because uh, I'm thinking of Iceland specifically, which was uh, had a, a lot. It was heavily invested in a lot of the these sort of what turned out to be uh, not very high quality investments, and I and I wonder if the to the extent to which the global financial crisis pay, played uh, a an outsized role in leading countries individually to believe that well. Uh, maybe it is time to look inward and not be as open as we have been in the past.
2: Yeah. I think history speaks loudly on that point when everything's go wrong in a dramatic fashion. And when you're worried about the world, especially when it seems like the threat comes from the outside and this is the financial contagion, but also the pandemic, then people start to build walls and turn inwards because they think that they can control things in uh, in a better fashion uh, but obviously then often quite often because they also want to benefit particular um economic incumbents and their are especially um favored businesses and uh, local monopolies and that's the power that they get when you start uh, to turn towards in turn inwards and towards moral protectionism
0: uh ian when we try when we take a look at the Human Freedom Index, what are some of the measures that you look at that that stand the individual measures that uh, stand out to you as uh, particularly telling in terms of maybe having some predictive power about uh, where we're headed?
1: Well, you know, Johan just talked about globalization and trade, and in fact, uh, freedom to trade was one of the areas that uh, has most fallen over the last uh, uh, many years. And if we look at some of the other areas, we find that they are the rule of law, uh, freedom of expression. And so that when uh, uh, the pandemic hits, what really is happening during the pandemic is that almost all, well, most of the different categories of freedom that we look at including freedom of movement and um, almost every indicator of economic freedom not just freedom to trade fall and as i say uh, they do so notably um, and you can say that the pandemic had that uh, extra effect that a crisis had, Uh, but it was probably more severe. Uh, I mean, there was no doubt that it was more severe than the financial crisis in terms of the loss of freedom. And um, it certainly uh, did accelerate trends that were already happening uh, beforehand. Scholars of free speech talk about a free speech recession that had already been going on for many years all around the world, again, in, in democracies and non democracies. And certainly that was accelerated notably during the, the pandemic all around the world. Historically speaking,
0: why do countries turn inward? Why do countries decide uh, or the leadership in those countries decide to restrict freedom and what happens to societies that make those decisions
2: well i think there's something in human nature uh, that tells us when when you're in a crisis you kind of want to hide in the tribe you want strong men and big governments to point out the right way for all of you and and that i think is a reason why um we see it in times of um you know major economic crises, uh, foreign geopolitical threats or pandemics. Historically, we've seen great civilizations who subtly turned inwards because they thought that this was a way to regain their power and their their strength in a dangerous world. But the problem was that uh, the uh, those eras were golden originally because they were open to new ideas and innovations and competitions and a competition that constantly forced them to upgrade ideas and methods and uh, and productivity. So there's this paradox. When we're in a crisis, we turn inwards because we think it'll protect us. And we've seen the same thing when it comes to globalization now, not just after the financial crisis, but specifically after the uh, Pandemic. Country after country is trying to repatriate supply chains because they think it's somehow dangerous to have these extended supply chains and be dependent on producers on the other side of the globe. But, uh, and that makes sense. It sounds intuitive that it's better to have everything close by. But what we also see is that the, the most dangerous thing you can do is to uh, concentrate everything you depend on geographically. That's putting all your eggs and your whole supply chain in one geographic basket. And most things that go wrong, go wrong in a particular region. So it could be a war or an epidemic or a natural disaster. And when things go wrong locally, then everything falls apart immediately. What we learned under this pandemic is quite counterintuitively, but something that trade economists have always told us, that countries that were more dependent on trade did much better than others because they then had alternatives and even more counterintuitively companies and regions and there's one incredibly exciting university of texas uh, paper on on the indian economy where economists look at the very detailed trade data that they have in in india partly for the the, uh, sad reason that they have a very complicated trade bureaucracy in in India, but it gives us lots to, to look at. And then what you realize is that the companies that did worse and were the least resilient were the ones who had fairly simple, um, primitive supply chains, only dependent on a few producers, whereas companies that were dependent on extended supply chains and inputs that were dependent on other inputs in other places, they did much better. And few people believe this. It doesn't sound intuitive, but that's because if you have very extended supply lines, it also means that there's always some place that's still standing that's open even in in a world of lockdowns one place that can produce these things and you can shift and change production and get inputs and resources from other places whereas if you're dependent on just one place and that's the only kind of reliable trade um, relationship you have if that collapses Everything's gone at once. So we have to, in times of crisis, try to count to 10 and not fall for this This
1: part of, of our human nature that tells us to just go home. I would like to think that uh, countries, societies, and individuals have learned that that lesson uh, that Johan just mentioned about uh, the pandemic and experiences with open openness and trade. And yet, uh, what we've seen over the past many years during a time where we can unambiguously say that humanity has never had it so good in terms of indicators of human well-being, not just in terms of income, but all sorts of of indicators of uh, life expectancy, access to safe drinking water, and so on. And and, uh, especially uh, in the developing world in the past several decades, uh, during this era of globalization, the advances have been spectacular, so much so that the gap between the rich and the poor in in this world in terms of uh, almost any human development indicator, any indicator of human well-being has been closing uh, dramatically. And yet, what we've seen around the world in societies that have been very distinct is this rise of illiberalism, this uh, rise of nationalisms and authoritarian populisms in places as distinct as Chile or Mexico Western European countries, Central European countries like Hungary or Poland. We see it in Turkey. There's a big nationalist push going on in China, Russia, uh, and on and on. And um, I think that uh, the big challenge is to try to explain why all of this is happening in such different societies, such different countries, um, all at about the same time. And I think that um, economics, Partially explains that, but to get to the answer, you really have to look at each individual country and see what the story is. What happened in Chile uh, is very different than what happened in Mexico, and it's very different from the kind of populism that you see in the United States. And um, there are many factors at work. In some countries, some factors play a bigger role. It can be uh, unfulfilled expectations with, uh, you know, years of low growth that can create dissatisfaction. It can be um, the role that ideology plays, maybe a very pernicious narrative. In Chile, certainly, uh, there was a very pernicious but uh, uh, very prominent leftist narrative that the far left uh, uh, was promoting for many years that said that the last 30 years of tremendous progress was really not so much uh, to be envied and that was at all unfair. And there wasn't much pushback a- against that, even though um, by any indicator, it was a-, a success story. I think we just have to look at uh, individual uh, countries uh, to be able to tell uh, the-, the appropriate story. And I think that di- many factors are, are at play. But uh, some combination of those factors apply to some countries and not others. You know, our colleague Scott Linsicum
0: tells a story about uh, the creation of the vaccines that uh, were created, you know, pretty much got started as soon as it was this uh, uh, illness was known, as soon as this virus had been identified. It was a massive mobilization across many countries for brain power, for securing the chemical inputs and the hardware infrastructure in order to not just make the vaccines but store the vaccines in ways that were capable. And then there was a, you know an additional global mobilization to get those vaccines distributed widely across the globe. And that's the kind of story that is, you know humanity at its at its finest. In facing a crisis. And I I wonder, is it what Steven Pinker always tells us that we're uh, programmed in a way to, Well, that thing just happened. That's fine. That whatever. No, that's not. Let's focus on this doom and gloom here. Is (laughs) is is that
2: part of it? I I think that there's definitely one part of it that uh, nature is an economist and what we don't have to worry about, we forget. And and just that's um, part of our evolutionary mindset. If we've solved the problem, we just uh, take that as a given and we move on to the other problems that we have to deal with. And in a way, that's a good thing. It means that we'll probably solve more problems. But if we forget what made it possible to, to make those gains, then obviously we will forget all about the institutions and the freedom and the openness that's needed to to make sure that that happens. And that's why we need not just the, the data and the, the facts, we also need those stories to talk about how things how we got the solutions from previous eras uh, of voluntary cooperation across borders like the vaccine i think that's such a great story it's you know it's a hungarian biochemist meeting an american immunologist at the university of of pennsylvania and they then cooperate with the uh, descendants of Turkish migrants to Germany with their skills set and their ideas. And they come up with some ideas, but they need to cooperate with American uh, uh, Pfizer to, to make sure that they uh, can develop this quickly. And how do you do that in a world that's under lockdown? Well, you it. It's only possible because uh, Pfizer had access to private, to corporate jets so that they could take genetic material across the Atlantic while the uh, world's airlines were, were devastated. So, if someone had told us before, and, and that made the vaccine possible. And then, of course, it's also the story of like uh, all those uh, components that, um, that make it possible. I think it's something like 200. 80 different components and materials from 19 different countries that uh, made the vaccine possible and if you had told people before the pandemic happened so how do we how are going to solve this i think most of people people would say intuitively well we need a big government and they're going to have to have a plan and a regulatory sar who just fixes fix this whether that, Russ, if you say Let's allow people to trade voluntarily across borders. Let's make sure that Turkish migrants are allowed to uh, enter Germany and work at um, universities over there. And Hungarian biochemists are allowed to the University of Pennsylvania. People would have said, you're crazy. But that's actually the thing that, that saved us. And that's often the story when you look at innovations and when we count all our blessings when it comes to science, innovations, business model. There's often a story like that out there. Ian, you
0: made reference to uh, countries, uh, particularly those south of the United States, that uh, where the case had not been made—that moral case for uh, freedom—and we can we can talk about the, the benefits, the the goods, the what the deliverables of uh, freedom of globalization, but. You know, in a lot of these countries that you've mentioned, particularly, I think, if I recall correctly, Chile, um, that moral case just wasn't wasn't being presented and and selling that case, if I understand you correctly, is of utmost importance.
1: I think that's right. And I think that uh, the example of Chile has important lessons for the United States. After all, Chile was the country that uh, by by any indicator. It was one of the great success stories in the developing world. It was almost uh, developed, and yet um, Chileans knew, because they were told uh, by at the universities, at the schools, by the media, um, by important business associations and, and leaders at the museums, at uh, all of the the cultural spaces in in Chile, that somehow it was unfair, that somehow... Um, inequality had increased, that somehow mobility uh, was just non-existent. All of that is actually false. Uh, What was repeated over and over again were actually factually incorrect uh, statements that, because they were repeated so often, people believed. And that really did help uh, create the stage for uh, a new leftist far left uh, president to come in uh and uh the initiation of a co- constitutional assembly they wanted to introduce quite a radical uh leftist uh, constitution luckily it was uh, rejected but they're still in the process of coming up with a new one and that's a big threat to to freedom and i think that that is a lesson that uh, we have to take seriously here in the united states um we were talking a moment ago about um Globalization and the vaccine and how really uh, Scott Lincecumbe is right to call that triumph of of globalization and it's really a triumph of of freedom and one of the things that I like to point out when we look at the data on human freedom and human well-being because the two are uh, strongly related is that these improvements in human well-being in the developing world poor countries um, have been occurring virtually everywhere including in countries that have not increased uh, very much their their level of freedom even there you you see increases in health indicators and life expectancy and so on and uh, basically what you're seeing there is that the whole world is benefiting from freedom in the free world it is very much as hayek uh Nobel laureate uh friedrich hayek said more than 50 years ago that the benefits of freedom are not limited just to the free the unfree benefit as well you go to the developing world today and you see poor people with cell phones they benefit from the medicines that are invented in, in free countries the innovations the capital and so on and so what's happening is that the free world is literally lifting up uh, all of humanity in terms of standards of living And that means also that the freedom of of the relatively free countries like the United States is very important, not just for Americans, but for the rest of of humanity. And I'm afraid that um, one of the things that we've been tracking in the Human Freedom Index is a long-term decline in freedom of the United States. It used to be close to the top. Now it ranks on our Human Freedom Index 23. Out of one hundred and sixty five countries still one are among the freer countries in the world, but we we'd like to think of the United States as a bastion for liberty in the world. And I'm afraid it's on a downward spiral. last uh, in the last report, it was ranked at um, sixteen in the year two thousand, the United States ranked sixth. And so um, I, I think that that's something that we need to be concerned about, especially in an environment where um, the Politics on the right and on the left are being influenced by these more extreme illiberal views. Yeah, I think it's important to
2: understand that the development in itself won't do this for us. That's not enough. Ian mentioned what happened in Chile. It's really by far the most successful Latin American country in recent decades. And yet we had all that discontent in the midst of relative abundance and opportunity. And that's also a story that we've seen in once in a while in history. We had the same experience in Sweden in the 1960s when we were one of the richest countries on the planet and people were discontent, asking for more, fixing the problems of inequality and so on. And the then Social Democratic Prime Minister, Tage Erlander, talked about this as the discontent of raised expectations. It's not enough that things get better because then you also raise your expectations and you want more instantly and fix all those things that you might not even have considered as problems before. It was just the way the world worked, but nowadays you you realize that you can get out of poverty, you can get an education, so why isn't all of this happening to everyone at the same time and that's you know I often go go back to the um the old saying that he that has satisfied his thirst turns his back to the well, you for, you begin to take it for granted, and then you forget the institutions, uh, the freedom, and then all the hard work and the innovations that it took to, to create this. And that's a challenge that we always had to deal with. We have to talk about human progress, make sure that people don't take it for granted because it takes something. It doesn't happen by itself. It takes freedom, and we have to constantly remind people of that.
0: All right. I think we're going to leave it there.
1: I agree with that, by the way. Sorry. (laughs) I agree with that, by the way.
0: All right. We're going to leave it there. Joan Norberg is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and executive editor of Free to Choose Media. He's the author of numerous books, including a few for the Cato Institute, some very popular ones, in fact. Uh, Joan, though, tell us, what's the name of your next book and when should we expect to see it?
2: The next book is called The Capitalist Manifesto. Uh, I borrowed parts of that title from another famous manifesto, and it'll be published at least in Britain in June, probably September in the U.S.,
0: All right. And Ian Vasquez, vice president for international studies and director of the Cato Institute Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity and co-author of the Human Freedom Index. You can, of course, follow all of our work on these important subjects at Cato.org. The collapse of centralized crypto exchange, FTX, has driven congressional hearings and calls to further scrutinize and regulate cryptocurrency and decentralized finance, or DeFi. But how does DeFi compare to centralized or traditional finance in terms of risks and benefits? And how should regulation take into account those distinctions? At a Cato policy event, Tiffany J. Smith, a partner at Wilmer Hale, and Dane
3: Lund, a core contributor at Alliance DAO, Offered their thoughts. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. Um, as Jennifer mentioned, my, my background is um, I've been focused on the regulation of financial intermediaries for the last uh, 14 years. And in that experience, I've always focused on the federal securities laws, the state, the state laws, and what applies to those entities holding other people's money, Right and as we think about crypto and we think about the potential there i see what is happening is that because there is a push for regulation we're trying to in some respects blindly push the regulations that are that are really meant for centralized intermediaries onto all types of crypto and not really distinguishing between those projects protocols where you have a single person who is making the decisions about how the protocol works versus the more decentralized projects and protocols where it's not really a single person, but instead it's a dispersed group of individuals. And we're going to talk more about what decentralization means, but my worry is that by forcing a set of regulations on a group or projects that don't necessarily meet the same that don't have the same standards and the same functions as centralized exchanges, we are one des- deciding as a policy matter that DeFi is bad, and we're overlooking the benefits of the technology and really why it is that you have individuals opting in to these protocols. You no, know, it always it always comes down to client demands, right? It's the fact that historically, some centralized intermediaries have discriminated or not given access to certain groups. And that's why you have people who are underbanked or unbanked completely. And if you think about the rationale behind people wanting to opt in to these services, then you get an impetus to try to figure out how these these protocols are different from centralized exchanges and then figuring out the types of regulations and standards that make sense. I'm not suggesting that we don't have standards. And I think that some of the um, language and the verbiage from folks in the the DeFi and crypto community from years ago that we don't have regulations is totally false. We need to have regulations because anytime you're dealing with with other people's money, we have to have those regulations. But we need to think about how DeFi is different, starting with the fact that these are very much in on their... um, Computer focused native protocols where you have to worry about things like cybersecurity in a way that you don't need to necessarily worry about in the same way for centralized exchanges. So, thinking about the differences and starting off, um, starting off developing regulations from that point, I think is a good starting point. And how we get there is by having dialogues like this, having discussions and saying from the industry saying, yes, we understand that we need to have regulations. Yes, we understand that we must protect consumers. And then having the regulators understand that there is a willingness to engage and have regulation, a desire to have regulation, but the regulations we have for central intermediaries don't necessarily work for decentralized players and protocols. Thank you. Uh,
4: thank you very much. So, uh- I think we face two crises um, that are very important uh, that that kind of come to a head in this discussion. One is a crisis of competitiveness. Uh, You know, the number one class at Stanford right now is a blockchain class. We have some of the best developers in our our country um, really focused on this technology and they're very excited about it. Um, they're, They're not going in with blind enthusiasm. These are people who have a real understanding of how technology is built. They see the logic and they're building things that go, Past what I'd say are the like the obvious use cases of blockchain technology, which is pure transactional. Um, These use cases apply to things like human organization, um, the you know development of art, uh, you know the nexus between um, social movements and assets. Um, There will be new concepts that come from this, but it's very important um, if the United States wants to maintain a position of competitiveness in technology general. Generally, that um, we face the second crisis, which is a crisis of understanding between the private market and the um, and the government. So we have a legibility issue uh, in many cases, and I think DeFi, you know, focusing on on one use case, is a very good example of this. Um, there are some very interesting and valuable use cases of this technology that um, do relate to moving large amounts of money, which do trigger. Um, you know some of the duties of government um, and and um, some of the purposes of regulation, but they also trigger some of the most important um, aspects of you know privacy rights, um, of rights of citizens, of organizational rights. Um, and so, if we're not able to have a discussion um, where we're honest about what the technology is capable of, um, then we're going to lose on the primary. Uh, crisis which is the competitiveness so my hope is that through today's discussion we get to you know legibility to understand how we can be more competitive
0: tiffany j smith is a partner at wilmer hale and dane lund is a core contributor at alliance dao the police killing of tyree nichols in memphis is exceptional at least in a way Few people defended the actions of the officers who killed him. And after the video quickly surfaced, the perpetrators were quickly charged. And yet, creating a culture where that kind of brutality simply doesn't occur with such great regularity will require a heavier lift. Cato's J. Schweiker says that will mean ending qualified immunity. This case seems rare, in a sense. Uh, we have cases of police brutality, uh, pol- egregious misconduct on the part of police. One, this was a specific unit and not just a bunch of cops who happened to be together at one place at one time. Uh, two, the video was released fairly quickly. And three, these no, almost no one defended these police officers and their activities, and they were charged fairly quickly. Uh, and I think some people thought, well, that's that's good. Uh, but it still highlights a substantial problem.
5: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what I think I like that framing, that there's there's a way in which this incident is exceptional. Um, and it it highlights and illustrates some very important problems with our current policing system. But it's also um you know, maybe not representative of the sort of ordinary problems that we face uh in terms of police accountability. Um, I mean, I think it is, you know, an especially shocking and egregious degree of unjustified violence. I think anyone who has actually, you know, brought themselves to watch the harrowing video, um, you know, comes to that conclusion. Um, but I think that in terms of and you're right, I mean, in terms of response, um, You know, we did get the video fairly quickly. Um, There has been pretty swift action in terms of criminal prosecution. Um, And that's, you know, good in a sense. But accountability doesn't just mean can we ensure justice for the people who commit committed this particular act of violence? It's how do we inculcate a culture of accountability, of predictable accountability, such that these kinds of events don't occur uh, in the first place? Yeah, in a different context, in the context of our,
0: our criminal justice system, everyday defendants going to court and receiving sort of outrageous sentences, uh, you know, where the focus has been is, well, how do we get these people out of prison sooner? And, of course, that <laughs> what you're talking about in, the, in in this context is, no, 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 this is a horrible consequence of a bad system. This is a horrible consequence of a system where uh, these sentences are not rational. And in the context of policing, it's, well, how do we prevent this kind of thing?
5: Yeah, exactly. And you just, you know, you don't get this kind of violence, this kind of reckless disregard for traditional I mean, not even just not even just constitutional rights, but for basic norms of policing, unless you have a system where officers just simply don't expect to be held accountable on an ordinary basis. Um, When Clark and I were talking about this last week, he used the terms, um, you know, the broken windows theory of policing, which I actually think, you know, makes sense. Like if you have a system where police can routinely get away with more, you know, let's say ordinary constitutional violations, stopping people without reasonable suspicion or making unlawful uh, arrests or unlawful searches, you know, that affects the culture that affects their expectations. And that's how you get this kind of um, egregious, shocking example of rights violations. Um, and so, you know, certainly it appears that criminal prosecution is warranted here. Obviously, you know, we'll see what comes out of that. I'm not going to you know, prejudge that, but that seems warranted. But, you know, frankly, most of the time, I mean, criminal prosecution is a blunt tool, Um, It's an extraordinary remedy and it is it has an important part to play in police accountability, but it probably isn't the appropriate response for every instance of police misconduct in terms of rights violations. And that's exactly why, of course, we need a robust civil remedy that allows for more measured proportionate responses and puts the initiative on the victims of misconduct to decide whether or not they want to bring legal action.
0: And you can imagine a police chief uh in a world in which for example qualified immunity does not exist or uh criminal prosecution just seems more likely in almost all, all of these cases of substantial or clear-cut violations of rights you can imagine a police chief saying well how do we get out in front of this
5: yeah and I, and i think that it's you know i i think that it's challenging um you know obviously i think there are you know, police departments can take their own initiative. And, you know, I don't mean to sort of dismiss the idea of, you know, internal discipline and sort of, you know, training and hiring and retention practices that can address this. Um, but I think, you know, in my view, that works in tandem with a robust civil remedy, right? A robust, predictable civil remedy is what gives every department the correct incentives um, to, you know, get out in front of that, so to speak, and what gives individual officers, the incentives to take that seriously as well. Um, and, you know, and I think one direction where this now that we're kind of getting past the initial shock of this tragedy and sort of talking about particular, um, you know, possible reforms, we're kind of coming back to the same issue that was that was being debated, um, you know, two years ago about the relative importance of individual liability for officers versus um, vicarious liability for for police departments. And, um, you know, some folks even, you know, Uh, you know, people who broadly agree that qualified immunity is a problem have started suggesting, well, you know, let's just kind of sidestep this issue by making departments themselves directly liable and not worry about the individual officers. And in a way, that seems like kind of a tempting sounding solution, because it sort of would seem to avoid the political controversy of, of, you know, of letting individual officers be sued, which of course, they currently can be. But the problem is that by putting it entirely on police departments, which in in a sense means entirely on taxpayers, you may be able to compensate victims. You know, I mean, you may ensure that there's a a remedy in in case of violation, but you're not providing that upfront individualized deterrence that civil rights laws are meant to provide. And so you don't really do as much to prevent these kinds of, of offenses from happening in the first place, which is really the ultimate goal. Yeah, you don't necessarily... Uh, encourage that cultural shift. Exactly.
0: So, uh, when we talk about uh, qualified immunity, some states and uh, localities have uh, gotten rid of it. Um, do, do we have any evidence so far of what that has meant in those jurisdictions?
5: I, I mean, I think it's important to maintain, you know, a certain degree of, you know. Uh, Social science humility and trying to draw extremely broad conclusions um, in a very short period of time on a very complex social problem like this. Um, But uh, what we do know, I mean, certainly what we know for sure is that uh, the sort of hyperbolic doomsday predictions about what would happen if you got rid of qualified immunity have not come to pass in Colorado and New Mexico and New York City, um, the jurisdictions that have essentially enacted state level qualified immunity reform. Um, there have not been declines in police retention out of step with like national trends. And and in fact, my understanding is that Colorado in particular, has um, done better than national trends in terms of overall you know retention questions. Um, there have been uh, a I, I know at least in Colorado, there have been a relatively small handful um of cases brought under the new Colorado civil rights law. um most of those have, uh, you know, a lot of those have still been working their way through court. So it's soon, it's a little soon to say exactly, you know, what's going to happen in those in typical cases. But what we have not seen is the so called flood of frivolous litigation that opponents of qualified immunity reform have also predicted. Um, You know, so again, I I, I don't want to come out here and say, well, we definitely know that it's everything is better in those jurisdictions precisely because of these laws. But we do know that the doomsday predictions have not come to pass. And so, My hope and, you know, this may be naive, but my hope is we can have a slightly more rational discourse around this question, um, you know, in this sort of I guess this sort of next cycle of both potential federal and state level reforms where, um, you know, we can acknowledge what evidence we have uh, and that it, you know, it the it just does not bear out the concrete predictions that opponents of uh, qualified immunity reform have been making
0: uh the issue at least at the federal level has been a major sticking point for criminal justice reform is there any evidence that that is uh cooling uh is 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 or do you have any hopes that uh the uh discussions about qualified immunity being included in some sort of reform package will continue
5: i think it will be a challenge um i i i, do, I mean i do have hope i think that um you know even uh Already, I mean, Lindsey Graham, who who, you know, a, you know, was a pretty vociferous opponent of, you know, the Justice and Policing Act passing in the Senate um, in 2021 has, you know, acknowledged the problem here. He 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 has been sort of one of the proponents of I mean, in, in just, you know, a couple weeks ago, he took to Twitter saying, well, you know, I don't want to have individual officers sued, but police departments should be vicariously liable, you know, and as we were discussing, I don't think that's the ideal solution, but it shows that he's at least talking about potential reforms. And so hopefully that sort of gets some momentum going for a conversation. Um, I I mean, honestly, I mean, one thing that gives me some hope is that I think, you know, in in the in the immediate aftermath of George Floyd's murder um, in sort of the summer of 2020, there really was this kind of moment where there was broad, you know, bipartisan agreement that there was something wrong with how qualified immunity was working and there were you know disagreements on maybe what the right approach was but it really wasn't that controversial to say that there was a problem with this doctrine and that of course is the point in time where we had Republican Senator Mike Braun introduce a bill in the Senate that would have essentially eliminated QI in its current form and replaced it with you know a very narrow set of safe harbor alternatives what i think happened though is that this narrative about or the, you know the policy question of qualified immunity reform and police reform in general got wrapped up with this much broader culture war narrative about, you know, defund the police versus back the blue. And in the aftermath of the 2020 election, I think that the the issue just was so hot because it really was no longer a question of do you support this kind of qualified immunity reform? It was which side's giant narrative of everything do you agree with? You know, and so it just kind of became impossible to like turn down the temperature. And so what I'm hoping is that we've gotten a little bit of distance from that, um, you know, and frankly, you know, and this is I mean, <laughs> one thing that makes it a little bit more complicated here is that, you know, th- you know, obviously Tyree Nichols was you know, a black man who was killed by police officers. You know, the five officers immediately involved were also black. And so it makes it a little bit less of a easy fit for a kind of racially charged narrative, um, which I think, you know. I mean, I'm, you know, not sort of, I mean, our take is that those narratives, whether or not they're true, are often a little bit sort of distracting from what underlying structural changes can actually make the system better for everyone. So it may be possible that like the fact that there's not this sort of extreme, obvious racial aspect to this particular crime could make it turn turn down the temperature a little bit. You know, I think it's hard to say. And, you know, of course, we do have a Republican House right now, which you know, given the current landscape of these proposals makes it challenging. Um, But I hope that there can at least be, you know, progress in terms of rational discourse about this at the federal level, introduce some proposals to get past where we currently have drawn the lines, you know, and even if something isn't passed in this Congress, you know, it generates a little bit more momentum going forward. And hopefully, you know, what seems more likely is getting more state level reforms um, so that we continue getting evidence about what happens at the state level when you do this to you know, again, push back against these hyperbolic predictions of disaster.
0: I spoke with Chris Kemet of the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund a while back, and he had a, a case of a young woman who had been strip searched by school, public school officials, and uh, I I just I just think it's important. That uh, we stress that the violations of rights that can exist on the part of agents of the state uh, can occur outside of policing as well, and that qualified immunity is potentially a bigger discussion than just police.
5: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, you know, obviously this issue has kind of come to national prominence because of high profile instances of, of police misconduct, but it applies you know, to corrections officers. It applies to education officials. That comes up in the context of cases like you mentioned with sort of strip searches or other sort of Fourth Amendment violations. Of course, it also comes up in the context of higher education in terms of free speech or um, free exercise questions where, you know, school officials are alleged to have discriminated against very often, uh, you know, political or religious conservatives, Um, you know, and so those are the kinds of qualified immunity cases that speak a lot more to Republicans. And so in a sense, I mean, again, this may be sort of naive of me, but like, in a way, you know, obviously, the best policy here is to get rid of qualified immunity across the board. But in a way that even though that's a broader proposal, it may actually be more politically palatable, because it brings in a broader set of, uh, you know, agents of the state that get outside of this one particular context, because as much as the law enforcement lobby often makes a lot of pretty extreme misstatements about qualified immunity. The one reasonable argument that they make quite a bit is, hey, if qualified immunity is so bad, why are you only trying to take it away from us? Why not get rid of it across the board? You know, to which I and other sort of actual civil rights advocates say, you know, your terms are acceptable. You know, (laughs) that sounds great. Um, And so if that's the direction that the conversation goes, um, you know, I would be thrilled to see, you know, sort of principled Republicans in Congress say, hey, you know what, this is a problem, but it's not right to pick on police officers. It applies across the board. So let's have that broader discussion. That would be great.
0: Jay Schweikert is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. The right to a trial by jury is in the text of the Constitution, and it's in the Bill of Rights. It seems like the framers thought it was pretty important. And yet we live in a world where the vast majority of convictions do not occur at trial. What are the costs of replacing our jury trial system? Clark Neely is Senior Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. We talked about the vanishing trial for this Cato Audio exclusive. As you note in uh, your chapter with Jay Schweikert and James Craven on restoring the jury trial, the Constitution provides that the trial of all crimes shall be by jury. That seems like a pretty clear-cut edict from the Constitution, uh, and yet that is is pretty close to the opposite of what we have now. So describe to me the situation we have with respect to jury trials.
6: Yeah, well, at the time of the founding, there were a few institutions more sacred and more important to the founders than uh, the criminal jury trial. It's no accident that the right to a criminal jury trial is the only right found both in the text of the unamended constitution, as you just quoted, and also in the Bill of Rights. It's the only right that was uh, listed in uh, every single state constitution at the time of the founding. And if you actually look at the Bill of Rights, about half of the Bill of Rights has to do with criminal procedure, and most of that is about criminal jury trials. So you have this incredibly important institution. We can talk for a bit about why the founders correctly believed that um, jury trials in criminal cases were so important, um, and as you note, they have been essentially taken over and and uh, expunged from our system in, uh, in large measure by um, the what I call the extra-constitutional practice of plea bargaining, extra constitutional in the sense that it's nowhere mentioned in the text of the Constitution doesn't necessarily mean that it's unconstitutional. But I think because of the way that it operates, the way plea bargaining is actually done in our system, it very frequently is unconstitutional because I think it very clearly violates due process um, as practiced in many instances. All right. So what does that give us in
0: terms of how that changes what the founders might have expected for the dispensation of justice?
6: Yeah, well, basically what it does is it takes what was meant to be a very individualized approach to the adjudication of criminal charges um, to be done at a retail level uh, with significant investment of uh, time, effort, and expense, and it transforms it into a wholesale process, um, the one we have today, uh, that creates a system that's able to process uh, millions and millions of arrestees or about... 10 million people arrested last year, um, and um, dispose of those cases with a minimal amount, um, a minimal investment of, of resources. Essentially, it has made it the act of obtaining a criminal conviction extremely streamlined, extremely cheap, and in, in most cases, quite certain for the government. And it was not meant to be any of those things. So, um, that I think is really what we that, that has that is the catalyst for our um, policy of mass incarceration. We lock up more people than any other country on earth. And the thing that enables us to do that is this process of mass adjudication uh, that uh, that plea bargaining is the driving engine of. So I was
0: uncomfortable for a very long time with this notion of mass incarceration. But the, the case that you make here is uh, by virtue of the way in which cases are adjudicated, that it is so efficient that it might as well be an assembly line. Uh, cases are uh, we we have laws on the books that effectively Uh, make this process quick uh, and easy for the government. Uh, What does that give us in terms of lawmaking or
6: does that impact how lawmaking gets done? It's hard to show a A direct through line here, but it seems rather clear that it must. Uh, We have a vastly over-criminalized society. The government criminalizes far too much conduct that should be either left alone entirely or for which some other response would be better. Um, And one of the reasons we're able to do that uh, is because we don't have to sort of pay the full constitutional freight uh, for enforcing those laws. I'll give you an example. There was a case a couple of years ago in New Orleans uh, where a waiter at the famous restaurant Antoine's was prosecuted for selling a small amount of marijuana and the prosecutors brought felony charges. The guy was looking at more than 10 years, um, but he refused to plead guilty. And when the time came to take that case to trial, they were unable to empanel a jury because essentially the prosecutors were being laughed out of court. People were saying, no, I'm not going to Convict somebody of such a stupid crime. Um, and that's really good information for the government to get, right? That that some of the laws on the books are perceived to be so ridiculous um, that it's not worth enforcing them. And that at least in some cases, you won't even be able to impanel a jury of people who would agree to convict somebody who had committed that crime. Um, our current system largely insulates prosecutors and legislators from that kind of feedback. And I think pretty clearly that helps to create a situation where we have far more criminal laws on the books than really make sense. And certainly more laws on the books than would be there if if each and every one of us uh, was subject to being called down to the courthouse against our will and told you're going to participate in this trial because this person has, you know, sold a bag of weed or something like that. Um there's no way in the world that I'm going to do that quietly. Uh, now, I will absolutely go down to the courthouse and participate in in a trial involving a, a, a murder or an armed robbery or something like that. Um, but you're going to hear about it from me if you expect me to devote, you know, let's say five days of my time to deciding whether somebody sold drugs. No way.
0: And uh, that might be for average people. That might be the only interaction those people ever have with the criminal justice system in a, in a serious way.
6: No, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the founders to go back to the founders for a moment, they firmly believed, and I think correctly, that participating in the administration of criminal justice by serving on criminal juries was an indispensable civic activity. It was a way of ensuring that people not only had a stake um, in the process, but also that they had a better insight into how the process worked, that they were that they were sort of, you know, n- not only participating, but in some sense, uh, they were actors within the system. And I think that to a high degree of certainty, our criminal justice system has could only have become as pathological as it has. And it is deeply pathological uh, by uh, subverting the founders, very deliberate intention of putting citizen participation at the very heart of the administration of criminal justice. If citizens still played a meaningful role in the adjudication of criminal charges like they're supposed to under the Constitution, um, I think it's quite clear that our system would look radically different than it does today. Uh, you, we, you, we, didn't, we sort of skipped over this, but when we talk about
0: the founders and criminal justice uh, before the revolution, what did criminal justice look like for uh, average people, for even the very wealthy? I can remember William Penn famously being put on trial
6: Yeah, so the footprint of criminal justice was much smaller uh, at at the time of the founding and and before that. Certainly, it was capable of and routinely did produce injustices. Uh, It's easy, for example, to remember what happened uh, in the Salem witch trials um, and to be horrified by it, as we should be. But the overall footprint of the criminal justice system, much smaller than it is today. You didn't have a professional prosecutor class. There were not professional police. So this was sort of um, criminal justice was something that was done on more of an ad hoc basis. Perhaps the most important thing to remember about the founding era criminal justice system was how irate the colonists were by um, the, the British um, tr- uh, basically changing the law so that more and more crimes had to be tried in an admiralty court than in sort of common law uh, courts. Because what that meant was that you no longer had a right To a jury they were deliberately ensuring that colonists who had been accused of various crimes would not be uh you know those those charges would not be adjudicated by a jury of fellow colonists the british wanted that to be done in british admiralty courts uh and this was actually one of the grievances that's listed in the Declaration of Independence, there's a a, a, a body of, of academic liter- literature that indicates this was actually one of the major grievances that the colonists had. So it was a really big deal that the British uh, themselves tried to essentially um, uh, minimize the the uh, scope and availability of jury trials, just exactly the same way that the government has succeeded in doing today.
0: So at the federal and state level, obviously, you know, as we know that most prisoners are prisoners at the state level. Uh what can uh lawmakers, what can I, I assume the judiciary can't do all that much, but uh what can lawmakers do to say we would like to move the fraction of convictions that are achieved by prosecutors from uh for via uh plea bargaining or not a jury trial um from its very high level to a slightly lower level?
6: Yeah, I, I strongly emphasize we should not let anybody off the hook here. There's plenty of culpability to go around. Um, I, I think that a system that is uh, premised on the, the notion that nearly everybody can be induced and will ultimately be induced to condemn themselves, to waive their right to a jury trial and condemn themselves is grotesque. Um, and, um, you know, the, this business of, of persuading people to condemn themselves is, is, has a squalid history and uh, I really think cannot be done um, consistent. Uh, it can't be done on a, on a, on a sort of a mass level, the way we do it consistent with due process. So what could legislators do? I think the first and most important thing they could do, and this would be very easy, would be to create um, a, what's called a trial lottery. And what we would do is we would take um, a, a randomly choose some percentage of cases that have been resolved through uh, a plea agreement. But before the guilty plea is entered, we would send them to trial. And what we'd be looking for is to see how often is the government able to obtain a conviction before a jury. And if they get the conviction, then the defendant gets whatever the plea deal was. Of course, if there's, a, if there's an acquittal, then the defendant walks. Uh, but what, we, what we'd be able to do is we'd be able to get much more precise numbers on how often the government is able to induce um, a, a guilty plea. Um, in a case where it would not have been able to obtain a conviction in front of a jury. And I've had friends of mine who are experienced criminal defense attorneys estimate that that number would be anywhere from 20 to 50%. And I think just those numbers alone, if if they actually ended up manifesting that way, would thoroughly undermine uh, the sort of both the rationale and the faith that people have in the legitimacy of plea bargaining as an institution. On the judicial side, it would simply be a matter of recognizing that coercion, um, even though it is difficult both to define um, and to identify in terms of when it's actually happening is plainly rampant in the system and we can we can know that from a variety of ways one of the most important ways that we know it is that um, approximately fifteen percent of all known exonerations to date um, involved false guilty pleas literally the government coercing innocent people into pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit um, that data is indisputable no one seriously disputes it we don't know what percentage of, of guilty pleas um, are, are false uh, but we know that it's um, a more than a de minimis amount, Um, and if judges were more vigilant um, about ensuring that any particular guilty plea was not coerced, uh, then that would have a significant uh, impact. Um, And then the final thing the judges could do, I mean, there's plenty, but the one last one that comes to mind is um, judges could um, uh, advise jurors uh, that they have the ability to acquit against the evidence. That's sometimes called jury nullification. We prefer the more precise term, conscientious acquittal. And they could advise jurors that they have the power to ask any question they want to know the answer to, including, for example, whether the defendant is facing a trial penalty, which is simply the term that describes the often vast differential between the punishment a defendant will receive if they agree to plead guilty versus the much more draconian penalty that the defendant will receive if they exercise their right to trial and lose. And if the jury considers that information to be relevant and takes it into account in rendering their verdict, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, and But right now, judges go to great lengths to ensure jurors know none of this, uh, but they could turn on a dime and ensure that jurors know all of it.
0: Clark Neely is Senior Vice President for Legal Affairs at the Cato Institute. If you have a topic that you want tackled in our Cato Audio exclusive segment, please send it to CatoAudio at Cato.org and we'll take a look. Thank you. A programming note, this is, well, it's a bittersweet moment. This is the very last edition of Cato Audio that will be mailed in physical form to our subscribers. We're still producing it, of course, but from here on out, You'll need to grab your Cato Audio editions the same way you get the Cato Daily Podcast, from a podcasting app or from our website. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.